0: It can feel like we don't know where the bottom is in this conversation. And yet we know that we must create one. From
1: Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in Washington, D.C.
0: Because we're talking about constitutional rights. We're talking about human rights. And we do not wanna go to the place where people had to get permission to read certain things or where there were entire groups
1: that were sort of forced into a compulsory illiteracy. This weekend marks the start of Banned Books Week, which is such an unbelievable concept for a country that is so proud of its tradition of freedom. We've lined up a couple of amazing guests to really look at where the situation stands today with these growing attacks on free expression and inclusive education. So in the next hour, I will be talking with Tracy Hall, Executive Director of the American Library Association, which does so much important work promoting the right to read and to the free expression of ideas in our nation's libraries. And I'll also be talking with Sabrina Baeta, who is Program Consultant at PEN America's Freedom to Read program. On Wednesday, October 18th, we are going to be doing a very special briefing about banned books and censorship. Our honorary host in this is Congressman Jamie Raskin. This will be at Capitol Hill, and we're gonna be talking about the dangers that book bans pose to our communities and how people of faith and diverse beliefs can fight back. Tracy D. Hall, Executive Director of the American Library Association, who you will hear from today, will be there. We're also going to be here from the executive director of the Sikh coalition and many others who are really on the front lines of this fight. Please go to interfaithalliance.org to sign up. You can live stream this and we want to make sure that as many people as possible know about it and as many people as possible get activated about this crucial issue of our time. We are growing State of Belief, building on our 17-year history by partnering with Religion News Service. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's a next generation of State of Belief podcasts I wanna make sure you're subscribed to. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. It would really help to have you subscribe and to tell people you're close to about the conversations you are hearing. State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Tracy D. Hall has led the American Library Association since 2020 with a background ranging from hands-on librarian to work at the Joyce Foundation and the city of Chicago. Tracy's background also includes serving as assistant dean at Dominican University, all of which is to say she has seen the power of words, of literacy, of books from many angles, and also sees the threat of banned books and banned beliefs as well. I am really thrilled to have you with us today, Tracy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So do we say happy banned books week? I don't even know. Like, is there a, what is the, is it a lament? Is it, what are we doing this week when we talk about banned books, which just I have to say, it feels crazy to me that there is a week for banned books, but there is, and that's where we are. So talk to me what you're feeling as someone who is at the center of this, what's your feeling and what is the message you want to make sure our listeners here today?
0: Yes, well, I agree with you, right? It's hard to find the words uh, to say about uh, where we are right now um, in this moment, where um, censorship attempts against books now eclipse that um, that occurred during the era, the, the McCarthy era, um, named right. for uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy, who um, during uh, you know his time leading the Committee on Un-American Activities. Uh, responsible, was responsible for the burning and banning of over 30,000 books. You know, the fact that we are now in a place where um, the number of attempts to ban books is just rising exponentially month after month after month, it feels, it feels odd. It feels like we're going backwards, but it is a time for us to lift up um, reading, to lift up literature and uh, to celebrate the reading of banned books as um, really a show of our freedom and the fact that we all have the constitutional right uh, to read. So it is hard to put into words what we're experiencing now or to even find the right verb um, to talk about it. But uh, it is something that we must do because we must exercise um, our First Amendment right of freedom of speech, uh, the right to read, and you know the right to convene to worship, uh, et cetera, is the reason yeah. why is our person right.
1: It's really important that we do focus on it because it's a concerted campaign and it's happening in local communities, especially given your role. I want to lift up librarians. I want to lift yeah. up libraries and librarians. Thank God for libraries. I mean, this is like one of the great building blocks of democracy. Libraries, librarians who bring information, all sorts of new perspectives on one bookshelf and are often places where people can congregate and all of this and that they are under attack. Maybe you can just talk a little bit about that because that really boils my blood, I have to say. What's the reality of the experience of librarians right now?
0: Paul, I want to thank you for your indignation honestly, um, your indignation that libraries and librarians and would be under attack, right? Because we are in an era where in the last year we've had 10 verified bomb threats against libraries across this country, school and public libraries. We are in an era and a time today where librarians, library workers, library trustees are losing their jobs and positions uh, because they are fighting for intellectual freedom fighting for the right to read. So I I want everyone to stand up for libraries in the way that you just voiced there. Um, There's many, many, many uh, saying that if today we had to vote on the notion of the public library that it it might be contested. And we're only 200 years out from the building program that led to uh, the advancement of public libraries because many in this country saw self-education and the right to read as key to individual as well as national progress and productivity. And so to see us in a place where libraries of all things could be problematized as dangerous territory uh, because there is not a person out there, um, I believe, who doesn't have some kind of connection, whether they use the library every day or every week or every month, would they rely on libraries in some direct or indirect way? One of the things that libraries and the American Library Association worked on this early on is that libraries are the largest provider of access to the internet. And in fact, the American Library Association on behalf of libraries was one of the organizations that fought for the right to have affordable internet in each household. So we don't know what rates we'd be paying for access to the internet Um, if it weren't for that type of advocacy. And also we know that libraries are the largest provider of um, basic education, adult literacy education and instruction, family literacy, digital literacy instruction, uh, information about employment and employability and related skills, small business development, I could go on and
1: on you could, I and I mean, it's a hundred percent. I, I and I'll say, like, I am a proud, you know, library card owner. And when we, my kids were young, there was a great program to um, have, you know, reading hours and things like that. It was a great space, and that is everywhere. But you know, here we are. Here we are. And I, you know, uh you know, the fact that we are now back where, like, some people are looking towards McCarthyism as a guidebook. This is. This is really crazy making people and it's very. Very dangerous. You know, I know the American Library Association has done so much on specific books that are being targeted. A lot of people are are looking towards the schools. And of course, you know, we need to be looking at schools, but also libraries. What are some of the trends? Uh, you know, trends sound so trendy. Hey, what are the trends? It's not trends. <laughs> the terrible trends of books being banned. What are you seeing? What are a couple statistics that might be helpful for crystallizing this for our listeners?
0: Yeah, well, let's talk about where this is happening. Right now, almost 60% of book challenges are happening in schools and are aimed at school libraries. Uh, The other 40% are happening in public libraries. Um, We're starting to see even um, some of these efforts happen in bookstores, right? So, um, you know, again, right now, libraries, school and public libraries are where book bans are happening. Often what we're seeing too is a a trend that we haven't quantified, but what we're seeing is that more and more of the challenges are being brought by individuals who have not read the book in Mm -hmm. question. So we definitely see that um, some of these groups are being organized and radicalized um, by shadow entities um, that are uh, sometimes copying and pasting, sometimes maybe the only Somewhat questionable or offensive passage in a book. Usually, many of these books are considered to be canonical or considered to be um, masterpieces in terms of literature. And what they're doing is looking for areas to sort of trouble the water and copying, and pasting all of these passages, giving them to individuals and saying, "Do you want your child reading this, or do you?" No. And in fact, taking these, um, taking some of these excerpts out of context. So what we also know is that there is a growing disconnect between what people are censoring and whether or not they themselves found it offensive or um, think that it is worthy of question. Um, Many people, too many, are being told what to do and where to do it. We should be maybe leery of organizations that are uh, sometimes co-opting words like liberty or other types of words in their title because what we know is is that we are not free um when we are restricted from having access to information
1: so um a thousand percent this is like you know this is this is the a, a playbook and you know you're you're what you're saying about like Freedom to read is just so important. It's so like, and and I of course come at this with a faith perspective. There's recent statistics that many of the books that are being banned are specifically about the experiences of Jewish Americans, the experiences of Muslim Americans. There's a ban- There's a book out there about like the Dalai Lama that was banned. Um, and and heaven forbid there should be anything about like the intersection of uh, an identity of a religious identity and perhaps an LGBT identity. All of these things are coming together. And unfortunately, we see a lot of the rationale is like protecting the children based on my Christian belief. And I'm just like, well, this is not the way to protect your children. First of all, the stories of other experiences are equal to yours. And, and why, why do you get to decide whose experience counts? I mean, it's just, I feel as a Christian responsible for speaking up, uh, don't use my faith to diminish the stories about other people's tradition. And we have to, as people of faith and various diverse beliefs, stand up for the ability of other people to have books about their belief. This is another area where freedom of belief and freedom of expression intersect. They are not like discrete areas that can be kind of talked about in isolation. These are, this is intersecting.
0: Yes, definitely. Well, I want to talk about some of the counter efforts, right, that are happening right now. You spoke about, um, you know, thinking about um, how sometimes the language of, you know, Christianity um, is being used to justify censorship, when in fact one of the most censored books um, of all time has been the Holy Bible. And when we think about um, Judy Bloom, the author Judy Bloom, "Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret," you know, which we celebrated on the big big screen. But one of the reasons why um, that book was banned was specifically because the protagonist is asking questions about religion um, and comparing and contrasting uh, uh, um, Christianity and Judaism, and that was seen as being problematic. when in fact, you know, that is essentially human, that we ask questions about our faith. We ask questions about belief. And when those things begin to be, that's problematized, it it represents a slippery slope. So I just wanted to say, no matter who you are, when you begin to justify, or when we begin to allow the banning of some ideas, it's only a matter of time before that banning and that censorship comes from the ideas or the ideas that we hold dear, There's some great things that are happening in libraries. And then I'll talk about what the American Library Association is doing. But right here in Chicago, where the American Library is based, the Chicago Public Library uh, created something called the Book Sanctuary, uh, building on uh, Chicago and a few other uh, cities across the country that are sanctuary cities when it comes to supporting and welcoming new immigrants, regardless of uh, of their documentation status. And so the Book Sanctuary um, gives a place um, for those banned books and provides electronic access um, to those banned books for people who are interested in reading them. And that has been also emulated at the Toronto Public Library. So when I was in at the Toronto Public Library, I saw things like the Holy Bible and the Torah alongside of... Um, Fahrenheit 451, and George Orwell's 1984, and The Bluest Eye by uh, uh, Toni Morrison. What the American Library Association is doing is saying that we can't let this go any further. So um, two years ago, we became the first organization to create the national campaign, UniteAgainstBookBans.org. UniteAgainstBookBans.org, where people like you and me and our neighbors can sign up and say we stand against censorship, and here are some activities we can take we can take part in in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in order to fight the banning and the censorship of
1: books. You have personally had to have you know taken of this in in your own like well being. How are you? Are you like I'm a praying person, so I'm I'm lifting you up. You know, you and so many people like you are it's got to take its toll,
0: you know, I worry a lot about the field because i see I see the ways in which it is breaking down even strong people, right? Um, when you sustain bomb threat after bomb threat, I just got a a message today from one of our large library systems saying that um, the entire staff was in engaging um, in in bomb threat drills, right? Because it's taking time away from what we're supposed to be doing every day, which is to provide uh, information access for all, right? That is our goal and that is our (laughs) mission of libraries. I do come from a very strong faith tradition personally. Uh, and, uh, And because of that, it allows me to sort of reflect on what is the risk and what is the reward of staying in this walk. And this walk for me right now, um, I go back to Representative John Lewis, who said that before he died, he said that he believed that access to the internet would be the civil rights issue of the 21st century. And he was so right. He was so right because so much now is uh, really relying on who's inside and who's left outside of the information loop. And we're also at a time where um, people are thinking not so much about protection; they're using the language of protection, but this is really, Paul, about control. And so, again, I just want—I I just want to say that this is a time for deep reflection, and that is—that is really the tradition in which I walk, um, in which I was taught to reflect, um, to pray, to meditate, um, and I do that often. Uh, because sometimes it can feel like we don't know where the bottom is in this conversation, and yet we know that we must create one. We, we must end this conversation because we're talking about constitutional rights. We're talking about human rights, and we do not want to go to the place, um, go backwards in history where people had to, to get permission um, to read certain things or where there were entire groups that were sort of forced into a compulsory illiteracy, which I write about, you know, whether those groups were racialized, Black and Native American were forced sometimes into um, a, a compulsory illiteracy or only being able to read certain things.
1: It's it's about what they were allowed to read. And now they're trying to control what we're allowed to read about those experiences. Yes. And those voices were not being permitted. So it's like this is, you know, a terrible erasure of the experience of people who themselves were restricted in what they could. It's very dangerous stuff. And it's just so important that that we all like stand with our librarians, stand with what you're doing. Go to your website. um,
0: UnitedBadesBookBands.org.
1: Unite against bookbands.org. That's that's the first thing we can all do. I'm also very excited that we are going to be testifying before Congress. We're going to yeah. be having a, a Hill briefing. Um, uh, President uh, Tracy Hall is going to be joining us, among many others who are just going to be very important to lift this up as an issue that affects people from all all backgrounds and diverse beliefs, which is also part of the the mission of Interfaith Alliance. Now, I do want to make sure that we um, celebrate that you have received the Freedom of Speech and Expression Award from the Roosevelt Institution, which... Put you in the company of representative uh, John Lewis and others who have experienced that. What was that experience like? And, and what were some of the, what were some of the, the topics that were lifted up at that celebration?
0: Well, I cried from beginning to end, so I'm not a reliable uh, witness here, but um, the, the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Institute every other year, um, gives awards to either um, uh, people outside of the US, U.S. or people inside of the U.S. who are fighting um, for some of the freedoms that um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt identified in his 1941 speech, and that is um, freedom of speech and expression, freedom from want, freedom from fear, and I freedom think freedom of religion, of religion, of course. Yeah, and so you know, along with people like Benny Thompson and Reverend Fluker and um, Nancy Pelosi um, and others, I was able uh, to be, I think, just proxy for um, the hundreds of thousands of of people who are fighting for intellectual freedom and certainly for the thousands of librarians and library trustees and library workers who are in, in that fight. And it was amazing. It was really a time. If, if you ever needed to be reinforced or to feel like you should keep going, that's what it was about for me. Um, and to see the audience—I mean, it was a standing-room-only audience. To see the audience of people who are on the same journey, you know, who are supportive—it gave me a lot of—it gave me a lot of of, of reinforcement and encouragement. Oh.
1: Well, congratulations, and very, very well-deserved. And I, I like Barkin, to... I have to mention
0: Patty Barkin, of Freedom From Want, who has been on the front lines of the conversation about access to health
1: care. Mm, mm. Um, I like to ask everybody on this show, um, what gives them hope? Uh, because this is... Uh, sometimes can feel like a scarce uh, commodity, um, but, you know... I'll say you give me hope, but what gives you hope? Wow, thank
0: you. Well, you know, my family, of course, right? Um, what started me on my journey to in, in librarianship and, and my love of libraries is that my grandmother, and my grandfather, maternal grandmother and grandfather were not able to complete formal education. So both of them had to navigate low literacy. And because of that, they were just fervent. Uh, in in making sure that their grandchildren um, would be able to access um, everything uh, related to education and including extracurricular um, opportunities offered at the library. So my grandmother didn't leave the house much um, except to maybe go to church and to go to the doctor's office by the time I was born. But she we would make that slow walk um, to the library because she really believed in it. So my family gives me hope but more recently, I've really been pondering, um, Paul, the life of Dr. King. And I'm going to say this because I think I am a reluctant leader. Like, I, I'm an artist at heart. I am always writing and sketching creatively. And I'm not, is, I'm not an easy activist, right? I'm not an easy leader. It, is, it has been the issues and the circumstances that has led me to both. But I think about Dr. King because Dr. King was a young scholar, um, someone who might have been really happy um, as like a professor um, uh, somewhere. I could see him teaching in a divinity school. Um, But it was the circumstances of his first uh, uh, assignment as a pastor, which happened to be Montgomery, Alabama, of all places, that in many ways radicalized him and led him to a life of activism that he would never see the fruits of. So mm. when he died at 39, he had not even seen the tip of the mountain led along over to the other side, but yet he had been persecuted and he still holds on to, the, to this hope, right? Um, that he speaks about hope for him is something that he wrestles with. And I feel like right now, when it comes to realizing our democracy, which we are still in the process of perfecting um, as a nation, we have to cling to hope, the hope that the right to read will prevail, that libraries as their guarantors will prevail, that our collective faith in who we are as a people, that that hope and, and those aspirations will in fact be realized. And so I find myself, I'm not certainly... Uh, Likening myself to King, I'm inspired by the fact that he was so transparent about both his hope and his despair, and yet he continued to move forward. So, in times of reflection, you know, I think about Dr. King a lot.
1: Mm, Thank you so much for that. And, you know, it was never easy for Dr. King. We elevate him and we say, oh, well, you know, King, you know, did this, and that was, you know, great for him. Uh, And every step, created its own despair and hope and fragility and um, sense of vulnerability for him and his family. And, and it was, uh, you know, it, it, taking those steps it, we're, were their own acts of faith. And I just, I thank you for bringing up Dr. King, uh, who, you know, who's been so influential in so many of our lives uh, and also in yours. Tracy D. Hall is executive director at American Library Association. Find out more about their Right to Read campaign and list of banned books online at www.ala.org. And go to uniteagainstbookbans.org and find out what you can do in your own neighborhood, in your own life, to make sure that we push back this movement. Tracy Hall, it's been so great having you with us. Thank you so much for being on State of Belief. Thank you, Paul. We'll be back to continue our discussion of Banned Books Week with Sabrina Baeta of PEN America's Freedom to Read program. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation Podcast because the feed you're listening to today will be discontinued soon. Please go to stateofbelief.com slash podcasts. That's stateofbelief.com slash newpodcast. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Welcome back to State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. Today, I am happy to have Sabrina Baeta, a key researcher on Penn's Freedom to Read team. She's joining us during Banned Books Week 2023. Sabrina, welcome to State of Belief.
2: Hi, happy to
1: be here. So you have an important, necessary new report out called... Banned in the USA, the mounting pressure to censor. Oh. God, that is a depressing title and it's meant to be depressing and it's meant to be alarming. Tell us about what this report contains so that we really know what is happening, what we're up against for those of us who really want freedom to read, freedom to be able to believe and learn about beliefs as we wish. What does this report reveal about the state of censorship in America?
2: Yeah, you already, you set the tone for it. (laughs) It is. And then Book Week is such a celebratory time, which is good that we are able to uplift and celebrate these works that have been censored. But at the same time, um, it's for awareness, right? It's to show that there's still a problem that exists. And that's really what this report is about. Um, and how many times can you say it's getting worse? <laughs> that's really what we have to say in this report is that it, it continues to grow. The, you know, one of the, the big stats that we look at is just more book bands. How many, you know, how many times can you say, no, it's actually more books are getting pulled, more people are being affected, more students, more educators, more authors, more communities um, are being affected by this. Um, And that's really what this report is about, as well as shedding light on some of the reasons behind that.
1: Do you have the statistics like how many books were banned last year? How many books were banned this year? Like what's the what's the trajectory
2: yeah, so we're looking at school book bans K through twelve public education. Last year we had two thousand five hundred and thirty two. This year we're looking at three thousand three hundred and sixty two um, instances of books banned. That is a thirty three percent increase. I'm um, looking at the twenty twenty two twenty twenty three school year, which is obviously hugely concerning.
1: This is a a real uh, nightmare for those of us who are hoping that people can continue to learn and grow. Uh, that's the idea. It's like a democracy is built on the idea that we can t- can continue to learn, grow, learn about one another, learn about different experiences, different ways of approaching life, and learn how to do that together. That this is, you know, this is the opportunity of literature. This is the opportunity of books. And if you ban books, essentially, you're you're stifling and suffocating democracy what are you seeing as the specific kinds of books that are most likely to be banned in this moment?
2: Yeah. So for us, we're looking at the top content that's being banned is violence and physical abuse. And that includes cases of sexual assault. So that's being used to um, having books of that content are being highly censored. But after that books about with BIPOC characters about race and racism and LGBTQ plus characters and themes are the top books, um, content areas that are being attacked in these book bans. And it's important to note too, with we think a lot, it, it the mar- the attack on marginalized communities is so pointed, we see that not only looking at the content area, but we see it on the challenge form. we see it on this micro, the very challenge form, the first causes a book to be attacked to this huge trend of marginalized groups being attacked through the content in these banned books. Um, It's important to keep in mind um, that this is happening across the country. Yes, in places like Florida, but uh, it really is something that we've been able to witness across the country. And with it growing, that's the big fear is it's growing and it's growing successful in one area and it continues to expand out. Um, And when it does that, it does attack. Like you mentioned, it's kind of molding materials towards one view one way and it's attacking what is considered difficult topics that are important topics for students to gain access to that develops critical thinking i mean you really hit upon it already with these different you know diverse viewpoints that's what education is about is presenting different ideas and letting students grapple with that so when you're blocking and things like violence um, and stories of abuse but then also health textbooks also once I deal with grief and death. When you're blocking these difficult concepts, um, you'll hear that uh, terminology used a lot, then you're not allowing students to grapple with the very important real issues around them.
1: Right. So, you know, it sounds like on first blush, oh, well, I don't want my kids learning about violence as if it's pro-violence. These are not pro-violence books. Yeah. These are stories that tell the story that is the reality of many people that sexual violence does exist that that violence does exist and it and it if we don't if we stifle those stories how are we going to get better at stopping violence of all kinds including sexual violence so the idea is protecting kids i mean am i do i have that right generally it's done under the guise of we're trying to protect our children that's what it always seems to me and it's always like well okay whose children uh, and, you know, what, what are, what, who, who gets to decide? Um, what are the what are the some of the ways that um, people are uh, deciding what's the mechanism they're using to ban books? What's the most frequent mechanism they're using to ban books?
2: So I will say for picking a most frequent, it becomes increasingly difficult as mechanisms are combined. And once they're combined, they're much more effective. So largely, we've been seeing this through a group advocacy group coordination on the ground. Um, and then when state legislation started playing a part, that really supercharged the movement. So mm-hmm. at this point, we're understanding the impact of that in a place like Florida, for example, is difficult. Because is it the group challenge that truly got the book off the shelf, or is it now the state legislation that is vague and hard to follow and educators are not sure what material it applies to and what doesn't, and they wanna they've been told to err on the side of caution. So being able to even pinpoint that is becoming a nuanced, difficult issue, right. but really those two instigators are are the two are the ones that we've seen for um, right. As the reason for the challenge. We often
1: think of this as like, oh, there's a grassroots movement to like really investigate. And it's generally, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's actually like a national movement that is targeting local um, school boards, targeting local and 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 going in there and creating the problem. Uh, rather than um, a, a local group, kind of really trying to work through, well, how do we really want to collectively decide on how to educate our kids? It's people going in with an agenda.
2: And I, yeah, and I think the, the to your point, the idea of communities coming together and collectively deciding how they want to educate the students in that district, I think that's the key part that's missing from this because right. these are groups on the ground um, and it, it, you could even say it's been grassroots, but it is a coordinated movement. We've seen shared tactics across states, um, across groups, and we see book review sites that are being used at, across the nation for um, book review sites that are created by these groups that are advocating mm. for the removal of materials, not mm. for keeping them. So. Yes, there are groups all over, but this has been really a vocal minority that has been pushing for this without true community input. And what's really important to remember is that there were already mechanisms in place for parents to be able to engage with schools and monitor the materials that their students were being, were in curriculum or in school libraries. Those conversations have always been open conversations. Most places have always had a process for that. What this is though is a purposely breaking down the process flooding it with so many challenges that it really is intended to use that process that system against itself um, and to promote certain viewpoints into effect for one parent you know for one community member for one group to now control every th- all of the materials that all of the students in the district have access to
1: it's absolutely that's absolutely right I, let's step back for just a second we're we're in banned booked week i i remember i wrote like i wrote a piece when i was at huffington post i wrote a piece about like my my desire to ban books my temptation to ban books and there are books that i were really like you know you know, terrible things that are you know terrible racist book, terrible like mm. misogynist books, terrible like recruitment for terrorist organizations. Like I, I wanna, I wanna stop things too. We all have that impulse, and and yet there's a way you know for that that the idea of like squashing things. Um, one, it only serves to make them more interesting, uh, but but it also like. Um, the best way to think about ideas is the be- is to imagine like better ideas you know and and not to like be be like so dedicated to restricting other people instead create better ideas and more beautiful ideas that are more compelling. And, uh, so that was like my kind of exploration, you know, into like, you know, but, but it all seemed kind of quaint back then because the banned books were like, Oh, Harry Potter is like, who cares? You know, um, now it feels much more targeted and much more part of the culture wars in a, in a nefarious sense, but we, we can go back we can go back to like you know frankly germany in the 30s to talk about banned books probably even further back than that where banning information is a tactic towards authoritarianism i mean talk a little bit about like the broader context for this and and how this has always been used as a tactic towards a, another end
2: Yes, and specifically what we see here and what we think when we think of educational institutions, they are supposed to be teaching diverse views, diverse ideologies. Even um, everything that's presented to a student is not automatic that they should agree with it. So it, it, they, it is about developing these critical thinking skills and allowing students the autonomy to think for themselves, form their own opinions and then being taught how they can voice those opinions. But that that is a skill set in and of itself. So even if there was this perfect viewpoint, there is none. Right. And that's the point of being able to um, free expression of being able to engage with all of these different topics, all of these different ideas. We are pluralistic society. It it should be like that. So um, school is an opportunity for students to be able to safely and with trained educators, librarians, engage with different viewpoints that they can agree with, that can be affirming to them. You know, a lot of this is, it's so important that students feel represented in the literature that they're reading, but also for them to engage with new topics, to grapple with that, to sit sit in the discomfort of it and either agree, disagree, maybe change their opinion over time. But that's an important part of education in itself, is not so that every student ends up leaving that institution with the same viewpoint. It's actually the opposite. It's all about the skill sets that they develop in engaging with those materials.
1: What has proven successful in pushing back against these uh, book bans? Like if we think about book bans, you know, there is a way to push back against this and Pan America I think is is leading the way in that. What What are some successful th- means that you've seen?
2: Yeah, community. I always say community, 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 Uh community, local communities. I think so much of what we're looking at, if in America, we're looking at the national trends, right? We really take it up to this highest level to be able to raise public awareness. But when we see, impact is when local communities step in, are aware uh-huh. of the problem and voice their concerns and push back. So this is really a case where one person in one community can make such a big difference. And it can be very overwhelming. I hear that a lot. If advocates will come and say, I don't know what to do. It just seems it's so many books. It's so many voices are being silenced. I don't know what I'm up against. And we always tell them, go get as small as possible, go to your local school vo- board meeting (laughs) understand what's happening there go to your own students classroom and teachers understand if what they're facing what materials are being presented engage with that support that um so that has really largely been the most effective method um that we've seen when either a book ban happens and then the community comes out and says no this is not part of our ideals as a community we do not censor materials here we want this back that has been the most effective way that a book gets back, but it can be proactive. I would say that as well. If you're part of a community and you're thinking, well, it's not going to come over here, for one, we've seen it everywhere in every type of community. I know there's this idea of what kind of, you know, which political leaning is this is going to happen, um, what kind of community this might happen in, but no, we've seen it in every single type of community. So get engaged, um, be aware, that's step one, but then be proactive. You can thank your librarians ahead of time for having LGBTQ+, materials available for celebrating Jewish Heritage Month, like you can already be putting in the commentary and making it clear for the people who are most vulnerable in this, which really are the students, the educators, the librarians, those people who are the front lines of this, make your support vocal. Um, And it really just takes a comment, a letter, you know, an email that it can be enough even, but being aware of what's happening in your own community and then speaking up when it's time have really been the most effective tools in this movement
1: I love that I hope I, I hope all of our listeners are really taking that to heart that it doesn't have to require that you organize a massive uh, protest or anything. Just showing up at your school board or even just say, sending something kind and supportive to your uh, your local school, your library, any of it is just so great. One of the things you just mentioned, Jewish Heritage Munch, I, th- I think it's really, um, really important because we're what I see as someone who, you know, it runs an organization that works in religion and democracy is religion actually is a target. In some of these book bands that, you know, you specifically sometimes you see books about minority faiths that are specifically targeted because they're, you know, I don't know, because they're threatening that they're not, you know, that, you know, seeing someone perhaps in a hijab or someone with with a, a uh, clothing that's different or it's telling a different kind of story. You know, books about the Holocaust are targeted for, for you know, these are we're seeing a lot of different books about um that showcase the diversity of faith in our country are being targeted in and that has to and then the flip side of it is religion is often the motivator for those doing the targeting and so you know this is this is something I as the president of Interfaith Alliance and our listeners who are engaged people of faith diverse faith traditions we need to be aware of is that religion is often used as the rationale For a lot of this censorship, and we have we have a special obligation. Those of us who are religious, and especially those of us who are from the Christian tradition, which is often the ones that are saying, "Well, you know, I want to make sure that you know they're not exposed to anything that's going to challenge their Christian faith." And I just think that we have to really recognize we are living in a democracy that is pluralistic. And it is no one gets to decide for another person what their religion is. And censoring belief is the the worst act that someone can do who actually believes in faith or freedom of religion. And so you know you you all have seen this up close and personal, but how have you seen religion both be used as um, as a bludgeon, but also as a target for these banned books?
2: Yeah, I mean, you described it already, but because it really has been. I mean, we've tracked in the last year at least 41 instances um, of books with Jewish characters and um, themes that have been banned um, and at least 57 for Muslim characters and and themes. So uh, you have these religious minorities that are being attacked, but we've also seen now a counter ban effort to ban Christian characters in books as well. Um, And this is in an effort, uh, largely it's in an effort to show the hypocrisy of the bans, but it's not an effective way of fighting. Banning more books is not a way to stop banning books. No,
1: it's like it's like if you think trolling is your best move on (laughs) uh, on social media, think again, like, you know, that's not going to help anything
2: no it's it's absolutely it's not going to um and and for us it it really is about keeping those options open keeping those materials open like all of them um to be able to give students the right to be able to access them both from a a faith-based standpoint if they so choose but also just for information for them to be living in a pluralistic society so that they can understand their neighbors and their community members better and if in the level of engagement there's such cultural engagement with this as well which i think is not talked about i think this is especially when the attacks come in and they're very you know if it is christian faith based and it said okay this is going against my religion it's like well there's huge cultural elements to this that have not been part of the discussion that are still equally important for everyone to be aware of you know this is not school is not this place is not a faith institution when it's a public school k-12 public school so uh, there's a lot of parents A lot of parents with very strong faith traditions who want their students to be exposed to a wide variety of cultures and religions as well. And that viewpoint has not been talked about and is not being listened to right now.
1: Well. Listen, I uh, I will count myself as one of those people because, you know, I have two kids in public schools uh, and I want them to be introduced um, because they are in a public school, I'm so grateful, that is very diverse. And I want to make sure that they are learning about that, that they have every opportunity to learn about that. that That's what school is for, for me. And, um, and I will say, you know, as a gay uh, parent, like the fact that in in Florida, um, they're saying that no one can say gay at all in a public school means that the family that my kids are being raised in is erased as an idea. And so, and so it becomes like not even allowed as a, a, as part of a conversation of who's in our classroom. You know, I mean, it's really, it's, it's, it's the worst sort of, um, you know, fascism. I have to say uh, that that this idea of who can be counted, who can be whose whose stories can be told, it's just absolutely terrible.
2: Even with that Florida legislation, because it is so nuanced, you know, it was originally K through third grade that materials that certain materials that featured sexual identity, I can't remember the exact wording of the law, but that was it was purposely vague and people knew how to interpret it, though, which is why the don't say gay slogan kind of came about with that. And then it got through K through eight. So one of the things we hear is, oh, these are just restrictions. These are just book boundaries. But that brings up what is what kind of level of censorship is permissible then? What you know, who gets to decide what that restriction is? Because is you know like can we not have picture books featuring two moms or two dads because that isn't permissible to one family you know so like that gets we get very nuanced with this of is it a book ban is it not a book ban is it a restriction what if it's parent permission what if it's whatever but when these books were already selected by expert librarians who decided what was pedagogically appropriate to be in their school libraries or teachers in curriculum like that's you know these books are not getting randomly shoveled onto shelves So any type of restriction, of course, is not permissible because there has to be a reason behind that restriction at that point.
1: So, Sabrina, are there any books that were banned this year that particularly feel like you want to lift up that our listeners should know about?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you hear about some big cases in the news, a lot like Mouse and the Kite Runner, which are... classics (laughs) classics <laughs> and so many people are aware of and read but there are also some other books um like who is the dalai lama um wow. the Pyramid superhero i mean it's just other books that are, are just they're either picture books or they're middle grade or they may even be high school but they're just either they lightly talk about it or it's just it's about highlighting the wonderful aspects of the religion or the culture um and those a lot of times books will be, be banned and it'll be like, okay, it's banned because of the violence. It's banned because of this you know, difficult topic. But then something like the Arabic quilt, an immigrant story, it becomes more obvious what the content is that's being banned. And those are the cases that we really need to uplift. And yes, those big headliners are very important as well. But we need to understand kind of what's undergirding this movement and all of the authors and communities that are truly being affected by it.
1: And there's a chilling effect, isn't there? I mean, it's 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 not only chilling on um, communities uh, and the learning communities themselves, but I can imagine if you were writing a book, and you were hopeful. Oh, you know what? I'd really like to write a book about my faith, whether that's, you know, Islam, a Sikhism or Jain or whatever. And I'd really like to tell stories about this community. And my hope is, is that it could be available to public school. And but but now you're wondering, but what if it get what if I you know, my story isn't even allowed um, because people will are banning books. I mean, it just feels like chill all around.
2: It is, and it's for the authors, you're right, who are coming up with these stories or have just written stories, but they're not sure how they're going to be received now, or they've received negative vitriol from, uh, from these people. And now that has to sit in the back of their mind every time they write a story about themselves, about their own identity, their own culture. But then it goes to the publisher level because they're aware, we haven't heard, there's no tracking around this. We haven't heard anything. They've been, publishers have been good partners in this, but it is part of the equation down to school orders. We know that school order, like book orders in places have been frozen or not happening. So when you know that source of income is not coming, that source of support, authors write these stories and these are largely you know, YA down. They're writing it for these age groups. So you could say, well, they can get it outside. They can get it when they're older. Well, these books are being written for these students. So when they don't have access to it, then the author's purpose in writing that story is also disconnected there. So you're absolutely right that it really just hit every you know person and community involved in this.
1: This is a, f- a foundational attack on American democracy. I really feel that, and I I am. So grateful for what PEN America is doing. Um, And I uh, want to underscore that I hope all of our listeners will uh, go on our website at interfaithalliance.org, sign up for our book ban event, which is happening October 18th, and you can uh, live stream it. Um, We really want people to be educated on this issue and show up uh, wherever you can, however you can, in order to push back. Sabrina Baeta is program consultant with Freedom to Read at PEN America. She engages in research and awareness building around censorship attacks on public K-12 education, especially as it relates to literature accessibility in libraries and classrooms. Sabrina, thank you very much for being with me here today on State of Belief.
2: Thank you so much, and I hope you have a great banned books week
1: that's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping State of Belief going. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with your friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I'll be in conversation with leading activists taking on the trend to weaponize LGBTQI plus dignity and identity on Capitol Hill. Alan Morris, policy advisor at the National LGBTQ Task Force. Keshet, director of community mobilization, John Cohen. And Darcy Hirsch, senior director of policy and advocacy at Interfaith Alliance. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.